1: Hey, thanks for being with us. There is a a growing number of mostly women, but some men too, who were sexually sexually abused in the Amish and Mennonite communities. They've started to find each other and to call for a new transparency and reform within those communities. A new series that was produced by Peter Smith, who was the PG religion writer, and Stephanie Strasberg, the photographer, uh, has just uh, ended at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. It's online. You can see the whole read and see and read the whole thing right now. But uh, we welcome to the studios Peter Smith and Stephanie Strasberg. Peter, Stephanie, welcome. Good
2: to be here again. Thanks for having us.
3: Yeah, so let's start off, first of all, by giving Shelley Bradbury a shout-out. She's not able to be here. Um, so Shelley co-wrote this series with you, Peter. Okay, and as you were writing this series, um, first off, what made you start to investigate the plain people churches, the plain what, plain folk churches?
4: The plain people okay. um, is how they Either often way. refer to themselves. Um, yeah, it really just started with a tip. A man reached out to me. He had read. Um, I mean, you all know well about the Catholic Grand Jury last year. Right. And when after I'd written one of my stories, a man contacted me, and we spoke by phone. And he said, you know, I'm from a Mennonite background, and did you know this was happening in our community, too? And so we talked about his situation, and he said, if you really want to know more, here's who you need to talk to. And we, I talked to her, and she said she put us in touch with other people and kind of expanded from there. In something that's so big. I mean, this is a fire hose of information. It's one incredibly
1: heartbreaking story after another. Is it just how that works? Sort of the old reporter adage, one person leads to another that leads to another. And then before you know it, there's a larger picture that envelops.
4: That and, you know, we go to the courthouses and we've been to various courthouses in Pennsylvania and Ohio just verifying uh, a a number of cases uh, as best we could. So
3: as I told you before we went to air – John and I have talked, sadly, about the absolute catastrophe of sexual abuse in the Roman Catholic Church, um, especially here in Pennsylvania. But we've also talked about a pattern of abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention at Willow Creek Church in Chicago, in the Sovereign Grace Reformed Church system in Maryland and Virginia. And to read this over this uh, six-part series that you guys have put together, it just brought back all of this uh, disbelief That communities of faith can abuse one another in such horrific ways. And I'm saying that as an insider because I'm a believer and I've been a member of a church for a long time. But this is a crisis of, of inhumane proportion. And so I guess from your perspective as writer, Peter, let me start with you and say what struck you first about this issue? And was it different or similar to the other abuse stories that you've read and written about?
4: I guess what struck me most initially was I was saddened but not surprised yeah. because uh, several of those scandals that you've mentioned I've I've covered in in real time not all of them but several of them and um, I've gotten to the point where you, you know there are many people that I've met in the Amish and Mennonite faiths over the years who I like and respect but to uh, I'm I'm not really uh, ready to believe any group is totally free of these issues. And in fact, what I found, and this gets to the question of what's similar and what's different, is it's almost as if whatever is a strength in a group can be... um, Mutated and turned into, um, you know, right, a a virus. And so so that's what makes this one so unique in
1: some ways because the strength is the community, Mm -hmm. but the community is so turned in on itself. And, and, and the, the handful of cases that you've put together in the series, I would imagine this is multiplied by thousands and thousands across decades or maybe a century or more.
4: Yeah, I, I'm always wary of of uh, Numbers, speculating sure. on that, but certainly that is what you hear from survivors, from those who have spoken to others. That, that it is so
1: pervasive within the community. Yeah. And I think, to me, that's the heartbreak of it all because you know it's different than the other church scandals, sexual scandals in a way, because these victims were in their homes. And so as victims, especially as young girls or young boys, There was nowhere to turn to. Where it was happening in a living room, a child reading a coloring, you know, coloring and being sexually abused, and then from the parents not wanting to address sexual issues or not believing the child, it just multiplied the grief and the shame even further. So it was a complete strangulation of of any cry for help.
2: And not only that, I mean, a lot of times the um, girls, especially in this situation, because modesty is such a priority in the communities they they will get blamed um for being assaulted so the thought is you know you weren't being modest enough or something like that so there's an emphasis on covering your body covering your elbows you know making sure that your dress is long enough making sure that your hair is covered and a lot of times the girls when they were little were being told well if you are being molested it's because you are causing lust in the man and you're not being modest enough mm-hmm. and um, that again is one of those things one of those things that can sometimes be a strength used then as a kind of a weapon against girls in the situation
3: right and one of the lines peter that you and Shelley put together that stuck with me um it was actually not uh, maybe it wasn't something that you were maybe it was a quote from one of the victims but she said so what happens when th- the question isn't asked what happens when I'm abused while I'm wearing all of this? Mm-hmm. So it, there, there's a there's a step where in spite of my head covering and my long dress and my long sleeves and my long stockings and everything, I'm still abused. What do I do then? That's what's not addressed.
4: That's what's missing, yes. Um, and and so it, and that was Hope Ann uh, Doik who was saying, um, this is what... Uh, Why we need more education, uh, even on very basics, just for kids to learn how to um, learn about their own anatomy, how to use the right terms so that if something happens to them, they can name it and uh, and that they can know that there's someone that they can trust. Who's the advocate for them. So would you – we don't want to
1: presuppose that our audience, I'm sure the large majority have yet to read this series, but would you mind telling us the story of, of um, probably the first woman that you profile, Martha? Uh, Martha, Martha Pite. Pite. Yeah. Would you tell that story? Because that's, again, you know, inside the family of sexual abuse by her father over many years.
4: And this, this is a, a woman, she's um, now in her 20s, and uh, she had been abused multiple times by her father as a young teenager. Now, by this point, she had left the uh, Mennonite community. She grew up in central Pennsylvania in, in Huntington County, and she was in counseling, and, she, um, th- and this came up, and she talked with her counselor. And th- the way it often happens, the thing that persuades people to say, okay, I'm going to take the risk and come forward is there are younger kids in the family. I, I need to speak up mm-hmm. so that they can be safe so they don't have to go through what I went through. So um, she did report it to her counselor, who was a mandated reporter, and within a couple of days, she was talking to police.
3: Now, Martha was already outside of the community, though, when she was meeting with the counselor, mentioned it, and then the counselor reported it.
4: That's right. That's right.
3: Okay. Um, after she uh, spoke to her therapist, her therapist said, "Okay, I have to tell law enforcement about this." Law enforcement was notified. Then the father was brought in, but then also the pastor of the church.
4: Also the pastor. That's right, because uh, the father came in and said, "You know, I, I'm right with God, so I'll tell you exactly what happened." And so he told it, and he, and then the. The pa- then he told the pastor, you know, just so you know, I told police about our meeting. And so basically what had happened way back in around 2007, I believe, um, the, the son knew that the father was abusing his sister and reported him to the minister. And mm-hmm. the minister called them all in and uh, made the father confess it to the congregation. But he also said, okay, he's confessed it, so uh, you can forgive him now. Hug your father. And she refused. And that's the, one of the cornerstones,
1: right? So I'm right with God sort of supersedes all, all law enforcement. And if you're right with God, well, then let's just get on with it. But the fact of the
4: matter is this abuse continues again and again and again, even though people say that they're right with God. The, um, and and uh, you're seeing a change in some cases where even the, the, the Mennonites who came to support report the father in the trial uh, once he was facing sentencing he they said you know we understand that the law has its place and he needs to go pay pay his dues but of you know of course this is justice years after the fact it wouldn't have ever come up if Martha herself had not reported it I see so then Are you saying in some ways there is, you know, the
1: hashtag Me Too has been, uh, for lack of a better word, a woke moment for a lot of people. And so maybe this is finding its way into the Mennonite and Amish community where they're willing to take responsibility, see the errors of what's happened, to recognize that it is heinous, that there is sexual abuse here, and to make some adjustments within the community to free
4: these young women and men. There, there are um, officials in in the plain settlements, wherever they are, who are now, you know, they're, they're forming committees that are being a liaison between the community and law enforcement. There is still going to – it's going to take a lot of convincing, particularly for survivors, to believe that this is really working. Um, you know, we, we were in Lancaster County. The public officials were very positive about it. Uh, it looks promising, but, you know, it is a work in progress. I see.
2: And Lancaster County is is kind of more advanced than a lot of the other counties that we've visited. Um, they have a larger understanding and a more clear understanding of the problem, and they're starting to work with police and social workers mm-hmm. and members of the Amish right. and Mennonite community to move forward. But um, when we went down to Tennessee and um, met with detectives and investigators there, they had literally no clue. That this was happening, they, a lot of them had never even had a conversation um, with a Mennonite or Amish person really? in their tenure. So it really kind of depends. Lancaster is is very far ahead of some of these other places that don't have the resources and money and manpower um, that Lancaster has.
3: We're talking to Peter Smith and Stephanie Strasberg. Peter's the PG religion writer, and Stephanie Strasberg is the photographer. And together, um, they have put together an absolutely uh, heartbreaking. Yeah, and shocking, but, but absolutely essential piece on sexual abuse in the Mennonite and Amish churches. Um, let's step away. When we come back, I want to talk to you about, Peter, about the beginnings of the plain churches. Maybe you can lay out for us their theological roots and perhaps how some of that has you know caused them to recognize the behaviors they're now seeing.
1: Thanks for being with us. Peter Smith and Stephanie Strasberger are with us. A six-part series appearing now in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette called Coverings. Mennonites, Amish face growing recognition of widespread sexual abuse in their communities.
3: Peter, I wonder if you might trace back the uh, denominational genealogy of the plain people so that we can understand where they started because the past isn't even the past, right? I mean, it's, it's very much, I'm sure, informs how they treat each other today.
4: The – I'll I'll try to be as concise as I can. Uh, um, We all know about Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses. Well, the difference between Luther and Calvin, the ones that we're most familiar with, is they were fine with the state church. But then there was this radical group uh, that uh, arose in Switzerland that said we don't want a state church. We don't uh, believe in baptizing infants because um, they they don't – Make a choice. We have to um, Mm. uh, wait till they're old enough to. And and they were fiercely persecuted because they were outliers to both Catholics and Protestants. But they survived and spread, and eventually, uh, mostly in the German-speaking lands. And they eventually made their ways over here and to where we know them as you know, especially in Lancaster County, here, Holmes County, Ohio, elsewhere around the country. Um, very separatist. Their their view is
3: so that, that idea of them being outsiders from the very beginning is still at the heart of who they are
4: to this day. Yes. Now they they believe in the, the the two kingdoms: the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And you obey the laws of the land as long as they don't conflict with the kingdom of God. But you don't participate. You don't run for office. Serve in the military. Take an oath. Um, you live as separately as you can wearing distinctive clothing particularly the woman but the men too yeah. uh, both as a modesty thing and also as a badge of separate separateness and because of that exclusivity that sort of uh,
1: pushing away from modern society in many ways law enforcement has left them alone or people from the outside can't peer over the fence to see surely what's going on
4: and i think it's um I don't think you should underestimate the latter either as you know, how do you know what's going on until you know it. Um, now, in many ways, like like the um, investigators in Tennessee said, as far as we knew, they're, they're model citizens. And there are many things to sure. admire in, in them. And you know, any of us that have, that have met the Amish and Mennonites know that, that they, they have many admirable traits. but you can't know something until you know it and it's only that these brave people are beginning to speak up that we know as much as we do Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. tell us
1: another story Um, i'm curious about i think it was in part two a married couple diane and jim burkholder i mean their story is fascinating because he talks about you know his own lust and the way that he manipulated and used his wife and at the same time 11 children
4: but then they left the community that was one of the more remarkable stories that that um came to us and we were they we were referred to them very early and we met with them and they were about as open as i think any two people ever have been mm-hmm. i've been in journalism for more than 30 years and they were utterly candid about Is that right? the, the fact that they um you know they were they began courting as teenagers and um They were sexually active and she got pregnant before they were married. She was told she could not join the church until the baby was born. And so she was literally living in fear of going to hell. Um, She thought she may die in the interim Mm -hmm. without being baptized into the church. And so. um, But
3: her boyfriend
4: could be. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. Uh, So eventually, though, they are married. They have this growing family. But at one point in her 11th pregnancy, she just. Reached a crisis where she said, "You know, I can't go on like this." And they really in her
3: eleventh pregnancy, she yes, came to yes. Yeah, point, they now have thirteen
4: yeah. children, by the way. Uh, but they um, they both they both realized they had been sexually abused in the past, and that they had no other way of the only way they had related was he was his sexuality was abusive to her, and he basically confessed that this is the case. And um, they have been trying to learn a new way of relating to each other. And they're very open about it uh, with themselves, with us, with, with their, within their own family, even as they continue to deal with what really has been, um, you know, a generational cycle of abuse from one generation to the next. So the families don't
1: talk about sexuality, or if they do, it's it's under a, sort of a shame network, plus a lack of education in within. They don't go to public school at the age of uh, an eighth grade. Their yeah, education yeah. is done, so there's no deeper uh, intellectual curiosity or knowledge.
4: And sadly, the stories that even uh, that we've heard is that even mothers and daughters may not necessarily talk about what they need to know. So.
3: I have to tell a story. I was in a I was in a community that that is not Amish and not Mennonite, but it's a, a kind of a related community. Um, over the last five years, and I was talking to a woman there, and she had had multiple children. and I asked about one of her pregnancies. I, I think I asked whether her pregnancies had gotten harder or easier since she had so many, and I only had two. and She said, and she was not being aggressive or anything. She said, "We don't talk about that." And as I was reading your piece both of you, I I kept thinking back on that, and I thought, isn't that interesting? I wasn't asking her anything profoundly personal, but because it had to do with sex or pregnancy or childbirth, off limits.
1: Right. Steph?
2: Yeah, um, that kind of thing is part of the reason why Jim and Diane Burkholder ended up leaving the church. Um, When they had this big realization, they went to the church and said, we've had this big realization about our sexuality. We now understand what sexual assault is, and we realize that we have... Both been sexual assault, uh, sexually assaulted as, as children and we realized that our relationship has been abusive and like we are really excited to let the church know about that and what that means and that we're finding this new way to relate to each other as husband and wife um, where Jim was acknowledging that Diane had her own sexuality as well and um, the church said we don't want to know about that that's not something that we're interested in and because they were unwilling to kind of address the things that were going on in the church regarding sexuality, um, Jim and Diane decided to remove their kids from the schooling there, the conservative Mennonite schooling there, and eventually left their horse and buggy Mennonite church um, because they couldn't they couldn't resolve that.
1: So when I hear this, and of course when I've read the the um, whole series, there's something about. The misogyny, And of course, they wouldn't call it misogyny because it seems to me as though there's the men look at the women within these communities as that they are the owners somehow. When you see these little girls. The men
3: are the owners of the women.
1: Yes, that they're perpetrated on. It's almost as though they're, they're objects. There's some, a material possession to be held and used. Is, is that a fair assessment? Did you see that?
2: I think they would call that submission. Submission. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: But they would call it biblical submission, which is really false teaching.
3: I mean I certainly believe it's false teaching yeah. but I, but I think this is what y- early in our conversation, Peter, you brought up the fact that the greatest strength of an organization can be twisted and become its greatest weakness. Um, and I think that the the reliance of the plain people on the scriptures is a beautiful thing, but their reliance on particular verses at the exclusion of the larger... And let me just say, in just a little bit ago, we were talking about the reluctance to go to civil authorities. And I was thinking about, you know, the Apostle Paul talking in Romans about the fact that, you know, to believe Believers shouldn't go to a civil authority, they should be able to work it out themselves. Well, yeah, so that's a verse. But what the Apostle Paul's saying, the larger idea is that you shouldn't have to. That you should be spiritually mature enough and you should have your act together enough that you can handle it. He doesn't talk about what happens if you can't. And he doesn't say, don't go to the civil authorities or something criminals happen. It's just it's taking little tiny verses and making whole theological structures out of them and then they turn into parts of your civil community and look what's happened. Right.
1: I mean, it's sort of like what, what the woman said about the, the verses in the Bible that preach forgiveness. Those were used ad, ad nauseum almost as a tool to beat someone down, which had the opposite effect. Right. I mean –
2: I think what's really interesting to me, and Peter had already been studying the Plain Communities for a a long period of time, but even growing up in Pennsylvania my whole life, I didn't know this, um, that whereas the Catholic Church kind of um, has feeds into one larger governmental structure with the Pope at the top and everything is centralized in this way – the plain churches are very decentralized so from church to church even if they're right a couple blocks away from each other their rules and understandings of things could be completely different I see, um, and their communities could be completely different so there's not this overarching communication or sharing across in that way um, so that also makes it Uh, it made it a challenge to report on because things weren't recorded in the same way as they were in the Catholic Church, and there wasn't this thing that was feeding back in. So it both affects their understanding of laws, church to church, and our understanding as reporters. Well, we're talking to Peter Smith and
3: Stephanie Strasberg about an outstanding piece that they've put together. Mennonite and Amish are facing growing recognition of widespread sexual abuse in their communities. The conversation continues next on today's Ride Home.
1: Peter Smith from the Post-Gazette, he's the religion reporter, and Stephanie Strasberg is with us. She's a PG photographer with us, talking about a new series that's online right now at the Post-Gazette website called Coverings. And it's a story about the Mennonite and Amish faith and the sexual shame that has been going on for generations. It's a fascinating six-part series. Highly recommended you go to the PG website and read this.
3: Peter uh you wrote in one of the pieces that the scandals of abuse and we're talking about the plain churches now but we've also talked uh in great detail about the Roman Catholic Church about the Sovereign Grace Churches about the Southern Baptist, Southern Baptist Convention about Willow Creek and etc. But you're right the scandals of abuse follow the contours of each religion Each religious group's culture, Um, as you've said, the benefits that we experience and the things that we're really strong in are also the things that can be turned around into our greatest weakness. Um, So each church is different. But one thing that I see that is similar about all of them is this idea that forgiveness is mandated. It's required of the victim. And it's not something that can be instituted over time. It's something that has to happen right away. Um, It can't be something that has to be, you know, people have to go to talk about or feel or – but it has to be given right away. But
1: we love this. You know, in the Amish schoolhouse shooting – all those families came forward as those little girls were killed, and we held them up as
4: national heroes in that forgiveness.
3: But in this instance, it seems manipulative. What do you say, Peter?
4: It, um, it, it exactly, and, and you know the the schoolhouse shooting was only the most famous example of that. But the, yeah, it's something that they live that uh, this teaching of forgiveness, and you know, as as much as it is emphasized in pretty much every denomination, I, it's especially. Um, important in the plain communities. Um, they, uh, they pray the Lord's Prayer very regularly and take it absolutely seriously that, you know, forgive us our debts as we forgive because if we don't forgive, we will not be forgiven. Um, so the so what do people do when when they're faced with a crisis like this? They say, oh, well, the, you got to forgive, right? So there is pressure on the victims to um, forgive their abuser. And often what comes with that is this sense of, okay, he's confessed, you've forgiven, now we drop the matter and we move on. Well, what do we know now about you know the recidivist nature of, of many right. sex offenders? So.
2: Right. And with the high numbers of children in a lot of these families, it means that a lot of times people – Who are offending are going back to homes where there's 11 12 13 14 15 kids
1: right and so that dirty little secret keeps moving forward
2: and the dirty little secret is made possible
3: by the fact that forgiveness is mandated i mean it is it is a truly awful twist of what forgiveness is supposed to be
1: right let's talk about that that shame right because so many of the women profiled throughout their lives now that some of these women we you know, published a piece about joanna who had left the community came back i mean a heartbreaking story to see her imagine her as you're right peter driving down the road taking her earrings off her bracelets off she wants to fit back in the community but you feel that tension there is a deep sense of shame still as decades
4: have passed after she was abused and it's something she's still—I I would say she's still working through—and you know—and she's come a very long way with it. But you know, there are even issues where you know she she has talked at times about you know the the sense of how they would pressure her to you know be submissive to you know that, her, that it would always be quoted to her you know a meek and contrite heart God will honor. Which, in its own right, sounds good, but to to weaponize it, to use it to keep her silent, um, had devastating effects. That you know, as as we saw, as she kind of went on that journey to go back to where she had been abused.
2: Yeah, Steph, you want to talk about her? Oh, well, on top of that, I mean, she was saying as a little girl when we were in an, um, the detective's uh, office in Pulaski, Tennessee, where she grew up, a rural area of Tennessee she said her whole community, her everything that she came into contact with every day was this strict Mennonite community. So if even if she wanted to report it to somebody, there was nobody that thought outside of this way of thinking that she even had access to. She lived in this rural area. Her school was run by the Mennonite community. Her church was literally a floor right above that. And she's out on these farms. And that her family and the people that she comes into contact with in school – and at church are are all she has access to as a child. So there is no running into any kind of safe person that she can say, I need help.
1: Right. And again, you know, we, we don't want to paint a picture here of, um, uh, of this uh, the, uh, complete and total heinous nature of the Mennonite and Amish uh, communities because I'm sure in your travels and
4: in your conversations, you met many wonderful, good and godly people. And I've covered them for years. And yes, by mm-hmm. all means. Um, but it's uh I, I think for those of us on the outside it's a reminder not to just um idealize or idolize mm-hmm. any community to say okay they've got this you mm-hmm. know um, that this is you know a, a a pure community i mean it's it's it, it doesn't it just doesn't work that way you know there's there's good and bad in every every community and and it's a reminder you know for everyone to look at their own communities or structures or churches and just say okay How can this happen here as well?
3: Right. So as we don't idolize someone else's, we have to look at ours soberly, right? And I'm sure the question a lot of listeners are asking, the question I'm asking is, how do we not let this happen in our community? I mean, I I think the easiest thing is to say what would never happen in our community. But we have learned that we should never say that. So what do you think from, from writing this piece and the untold numbers of hours you guys have invested in it?
4: There there are a lot of churches now, and and especially now that it's required for volunteers and anyone who works with children. I think there's been a lot better work being done, a lot greater awareness about uh, background checks, about training people uh, to be, you know, just alert to Mm -hmm. the signs of things. I think what is still a challenge is, you know, when an an allegation comes forward, you know, the temptation is to think, oh, he would never do that. Right, of course. And – I was at a conference that was run by uh, a better way which is one of the organizations featured here where some of the participants were saying and th- this is actually a participant from the Church of Christ not from a plain mm-hmm. church but he was saying we all love a good redemption story so when an abuser gets up in church and says you know I once was lost and now I'm found you know we right, all want to cheer. cheer that on yeah. right and nobody wants to deal with the messiness of a survivor who says you know hold I'm, on I'm not all healed here yet. Right. I need some help. Yeah. So, so what about that? Um,
1: I mean, this is a good thing. I believe the hashtag MeToo movement has been a, a much-needed breath of fresh air, a hurricane that has brought some reckoning here, an adjustment. Um, when you look at someone like Joanna, that story, someone who has been – Twist aside, and her life irrevocably changed forever. Um,
3: but someone who's recognized by her good friend Sarah, who stood by her and encouraged her to go back and visit the places where she was abused, and you know didn't make her go alone. And um, I mean, this is I, a good and right. I thing. think yeah. I, there were there was a lot of hope in what you guys wrote.
2: I I saw it that way. When I was looking at some of the comments on on Facebook, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, this is such a sad story and things like that. And, you know, there's parts of it that are are deeply sad. And I think for Joanna, that's... reckoning that in her soul is something that she'll be doing for the rest of her life. That's really hard work, and I give her credit for for doing that. Without a doubt. But, you know, she went on this trip, and not only did she go and report all of this stuff to detectives in in Kentucky and Tennessee, but she also met with representatives to change the laws in Tennessee so that the statute of limitations Mm -hmm. is extended so that um, the people in the next generation coming up Um, if it takes them a long time to come to terms with what's happened to them in the same way that it's taken Joanna a long time to come to terms with it, if it takes them a while to find that strength, well, the statute of limitations is now longer Mm -hmm. so that people can have more time to come forward and report their abusers and, um, and do that kind of thing. So, to and a me, model
1: to climb out of.
2: Yeah, it was a it was a story of immense hope, and I think that um, one of the one of the things that's been an amazing resource for us is the Plain People's podcast. And this is two people who had left the um, conservative Mennonite community who started a podcast to create a safe space for people to tell their mm-hmm. stories of abuse. And they said that their calendar is full, their inbox is full. Um, they have stories out for the rest of the year without even asking for them at this point Um, for people that want to come forward and share these stories that they've never shared before. So there is a groundswell of understanding in in the Mennonite and Amish communities that this is happening and people are starting to talk about it and people are finding their voices and people are starting to get loud and so to me i see that as as hopeful i think that there's you know as that conversation comes forward that there's going to be more pressure on the church to change and um so we'll see
1: Very good. We'll take a break and come back. We're talking with Peter Smith from the Post-Gazette, Stephanie Strasberg. She's a photographer there. Peter is the religion reporter. Coverings, a new series that the Post-Gazette has on their homepage right now at uh, the PG website. Six-part series. Highly recommended. Please do yourself a favor and read this. We'll be back in uh, just a few minutes. It's been in the hour with Peter Smith, who's the PG religion writer, and Stephanie Strasberg. She's a PG photographer. A a new series that's online at the Post Gazette right now that uh, details the uh, sexual abuse in the Mennonite Amish community. Peter, uh, I'm sure as a religion reporter, people expect you to cover church fairs. And, (laughs) um, you know, oh, that's nice. But you've done some deeply serious work in the last year or so. Heck, I mean, last week you were in Washington, D.C., where you won a Pulitzer Prize. This is powerful stuff.
4: Well, I wasn't there, but uh, they, uh, some, of, some of our colleagues were yes. there. Uh, but we the post that was yes. there. You're part of yeah. Yeah. that. Shelly that was, was for the Tree of Life. Shelley was there. Mm-hmm. Yes, our, our, our partner who is uh, not able to be with us, but she was with us every step of the way for this series. Um, yeah, and we were all you know, involved with the Tree of Life coverage, which that – um, that was the work that was honored there so yeah it's it's been a very very dark year this past mm-hmm. year but and thank goodness for quality journalism thank that goodness for the light. quality
3: journalism like yours you've done an outstanding yeah. job and also in, in the days when the the uh, common wisdom is that America is secularizing right and the church isn't nearly as important as it used to be all of these stories remind us it is absolutely as important as it used to be it's just important in a different way
4: yeah yeah. And so that's that's as good a plug as I can mm. possibly give for the importance of journalism in general and religion journalism in particular. Very
1: good. Yeah. So, Stephanie,
4: how about you? I mean, uh, you're a
1: reporter, but you're also a photographer. You're the eyes behind this. What was that like for you to walk into these communities with a camera? Um, people saw you, especially as a woman walking in there. Um, I'm sure it was very interesting for, the, for them to engage with you.
2: It was really interesting for me. Um, this was my first time photographing the Plain community, and it, what I found was that with each story, we would kind of go through some kind of negotiation of talking about, you know, what does this mean? Um, what I would have to figure out what am I looking for, what kind of story do I want to tell, because a lot of times... Um, I want to tell a story that isn't exactly like what Peter and Shelley are writing about, but sure. one that runs right alongside of it and adds to it. So um, each story, if you look at it, kind of has a different approach photographically. So Marie... Mm-hmm. Um, for example, like with uh, the first story, we focused a lot on Martha and Martha Pite. Martha Pite and and her family and the and the people around there and the physical place and I tried to tie that all together with the way that I used color and light and things like that. But then when you look at something with um, like Joanna's story, it it kind of goes in chronological order almost mm-hmm. more like a graphic novel is put together. I see. So.
1: Well, fascinating work for both of you. Yeah, for thank all you three so, of you yeah, actually. Yeah,
2: thank you yeah. so much for being here and- joining us today.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you. Peter Smith, Stephanie Strasberg. Seriously, again, get the Post-Gazette, look online. It's a six-part series, highly recommended about the Amish and Mennonite communities